There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today is part two of my conversation with Leah Ippi, and this time we're talking about democracy and seeing whether we agree or disagree about what it is, where it comes from, what it means, and how it could be better. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, where you can read brilliant essays on democracy and everything else. And to subscribe for a special rate and to get access to the LRB's peerless archive, just go to lrb.me slash ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. Leah, last time you and I talked on this podcast, I think we both felt when we got to the end of the conversation that we hadn't actually finished and there were quite a few things that we still wanted to talk about. So that was a conversation about power and political agency. It was also a conversation about my book, The Handover, but we're not going to be talking about that today. The things that we didn't get to at all then was democracy, which presumably I think we both believe has something to do with the question of not just how politics works, but how political change could happen. I have no idea what you're going to say. We haven't discussed this beforehand at all. I have a feeling that we might disagree about what democracy is or how we should think about it, but we're going to explore that. And we're going to pick up in a way where we left off. It doesn't matter if people didn't hear that previous conversation. But in a way, it's a fundamental question of politics, and it's a question of the past, present, and future of politics. How do we change it? from the inside, if it's not working for us, if we, the people, let's say the voters, we may get onto that, have a growing sense that we've lost control over it, how do we reassert that control? And that is also, I think, a question about the limits of idealism or perhaps the limits of realism, and maybe that's where you and I differ. So I'm going to start by asking you a question, and then we'll see where we get to. And my question is simply this, when I say to you, democratic politics this, democratic politics that, do you think of what most people call democracy, which is the kind of politics we have in a country like the UK, or do you instinctively feel that democracy needs to mean something else? Mm. Yeah, I think maybe that's a good way of getting the disagreement out right away, and then we can kind of go around it. I think of it as an ideal. And so to the extent that I think of it as an ideal of how you think about politics and how you relate to politics, it's not really something that democratic states or so-called democratic states really have. It's something that they try to pursue and it's more like a horizon and something that shapes our actions, both as citizens, but also as politicians, as members of different states. But I don't really think that anyone in the world has got to the ideal. And it's actually a very, very demanding ideal because it's about how you relate to political authority and what political authority needs to do to be justified to you. So maybe that's where our disagreement is, because I suspect I have a much more demanding view of what makes politics acceptable and what makes authority acceptable to all of us. And maybe for you, it's more a story of, you know, as long as it guarantees our survival or something like that, <laughs> that's, that's enough for it to be good. And I have a much more, I think of it as a particular way of relating to authority. So there's different, and that's maybe also how it goes back to the history of political thought and to the different discussions around what democracy is, how it compares to other regime types. And it's a particular way of thinking about politics and about political institutions. And I think it's that particular way of thinking about politics is actually extremely demanding. And so that's why I think it's an ideal. So it may be that one of the things we're going to differ about is the usefulness of really, really demanding ideals of politics. And I think we should come on to that. I'm not sure I have as minimal a view of what democracy is for. You know, there are people certainly who do think of it in very, very negative terms. You know, the cliche, which is it's the worst system of government apart from all the others. And there's a view that it's a very 
the justification of it can be pretty basically procedural. You know, it is a minimal way of keeping the peace. Most forms of politics break down into a kind of civil war, civil disorder, and successful democracies manage somehow to negotiate between rivals for power in a way that they accept the legitimacy of each other ruling. But that is pretty minimal, and I think it's too minimal for me. I think it has to be something more than that. But in a way, what I'm interested in, in what you say, is that for you, the core of it is it has to be a justification for power on the part of the people who have power that can be accepted by the people over whom that power is exercised. Yeah, that's and that right. Is, that is demanding because it requires finding a language or a means of talking about politics, which makes sense both to people with power and people over whom that power is exercised. But it also raises the question in democratic politics, I think for some people, the ideal is that that gap shouldn't exist, right? In a way, the way to close that gap is that the exercise of power and being on the receiving end of power should belong to the same people, the people. So I may have misunderstood you, but I understand you as accepting that in any politics, including democratic politics, there is going to be that gap. So it can't be that maybe hyper-idealized version of democracy where the people rule themselves. But the demanding bit is that gap has to be closed in such a way that the exercise of that power, which is real, nonetheless has to be completely acceptable to the people over whom it's exercised. Yeah, and and in the demanding version of the and in the very demanding version of that ideal which I endorse, the argument says that they will only accept it if they are the source of that authority. And so, right. in fact, the gap that you are pointing at between the people who rule and the people who are being ruled, the only way of actually making that gap acceptable is if it's so minimal that eventually disappears. And that's why it's an ideal because it's, I think it's an ideal that shapes a process through which we increasingly take control of our political lives in such a way that we are, at the end, the authors of all the laws that we're subjected to. And that's the sort of Rousseauian element, the radical democratic element that I subscribe to, which I think is a very distinctive way of thinking about politics, about political institutions, about the relationship between power and freedom, all these things. And I think if you care about freedom at any level, you have to care about political institutions that track freedom in this way. And that's why I think what's makes democratic politics attractive. It's exactly that. It promises a particular connection between individual and collective freedom, one where exactly this gap is progressively minimized to the point of eventually disappearing. So I was going to say to you that it sounds like Rousseau, what you were saying, in the sense that you know, Rousseau has a strong realist streak in his writing. He's not a sort of pie-in-the-sky idealist. In some ways, he's a pretty hard-nosed political thinker. And he accepts that there will always be this thing called government. Right. And the people can't do government. Government is something that is going to be done either in a specialist way or in some respects by some kind of elite. It might be, it won't be in the Russo version, a wealthy elite, but it will be an elite that have particular qualifications to exercise that role. But that isn't what politics should be identified with. If you identify politics with government, you're already in trouble because you've, you've sort of justified the power too early in the game. What you actually need is a form of politics where the power that government has is itself rooted in something where that gap is closed. And that, as you say, is sort of the popular mandate, the popular legitimation yeah. of government. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, if you relate it to contemporary democracy, the thing that most people call democracy, the primary mechanism for legitimating government is elections. But that doesn't really cut it on this account. And then the, the technical day-to-day -day mechanism that we use is political representation, the sense that the gap is closed by the thought that these people are taking decisions on our behalf. They're not us and they're not our decisions, but somehow they stand in for our decisions. And again, the Rousseauan version doesn't think that that cuts it either. So Rousseau doesn't believe representation, the idea that people can stand in for other people will do it. And he doesn't think that what we would call elections would do it. So it is very demanding in a contemporary setting because it doesn't sound like what most people call democracy. Yeah, although I wouldn't be as critical as Rousseau is of that part of the argument. So to me, representative institutions are a good approximation to what I call democracy. 
So I'm not as, you know, I'm not against, I'm not dead set against representation because it actually, for me, it all comes down to how you are represented, whether you are represented, whether there really is this capacity to say to someone, okay, I trust you with tracking my interests or my principles or however you want to cash it out into politics. And that's okay. That gives me some representation. That gives me some freedom. So I, there is a principal and an agent and that's that relationship. It's, I think, a better approximation and certainly... Yeah, closer to democracy than any other mechanism whereby you have a king or a ruler or an absolute monarch or whatever. So different ways of thinking about this politically. For me, the problem is that in contemporary so-called democracies, even that representative relation is broken. And it hasn't always been broken. I think it's a history and it, because democracy is a process. There are moments in the process where the gap is closer and there are moments where it's completely falls apart somehow. And I think right now we are at a moment in our politics where this representative relation is completely broken at all levels because of the way in which the party system, which is what we have come up with historically, is broken, which has traditionally been one mechanism of tracking people's will because of the relationship between political power and economic power and the fact that some people's interests and voice and uh, will are much more reflected in political decisions than other people. And I think also something that actually democracy is traditionally also been bad at. To me, real democracy requires global institutions that are representative. This is a particularly weak chain because we are at a point where we have all kinds of global processes of interaction and trade and exchange and conflicts, concerns that are common, you know, environmental crisis or AI data, whatever. So all our challenges are shared. But the kinds of institutions that we have are not at all responsive to democratic decision making at that global level. So it's kind of broken nationally. It's broken regionally. And I think it's also broken internationally. So it's I, right now, I think we're at so a juncture broken. where even... So it's just broken. <laughs> yeah. But it's not broken at all times and all places in the same way. It's broken in different places for different reasons. And again, that's why I say to me, it's a process and there is a history that matters there because there are moments in that process where you're clearly closer to the ideal and moments where you're very far from it. And I think right now we're at a point where all of us are actually quite far, but not all equally far. So what's the moment when we were closer to it? And I honestly don't know what you're going to say here. I'm really curious to know what you think. Well, it depends. I mean, different countries are different. You know, I don't think you can generalize for the world, right? So different moments. I'd say maybe post-war Britain was, in, if you were to take the example of the United Kingdom, maybe that was a moment where there was some kind of collective reckoning and an idea that, that democracy is very demanding and requires certain political processes and certain economic processes in place for it to represent. And maybe, you know, the party system was a little bit more clear cut. For me, insofar as we link it also to the development of party democracy, there was a moment where at least, and, and Western Europe very different from Eastern Europe, so again, you can't really generalize for the world because these different places have different trajectories. But if we just stick to Western Europe, there was a moment in Western Europe where party democracy was really, to some extent, tracking the principles and commitments of different groups, and it was much more widespread than now. So I think, for me, that was the moment where the mass party was acting as the institution that was able to help people find representation in political institutions to the extent that that has in the second half of the 20th century progressively that links broken which was i think there in western europe right after the end of the second world war that contributed to the loss of representation so the the example of post war britain makes me think of two things so one is that it, this is very historically contingent and the kind of politics that you describe where there seems to be a more direct tracking of popular preferences in representative politics also comes at a time where probably there is more consensus generated by a shared historical experience. So this often is a post-war phenomenon. And that is a real challenge for the idea that, as it were, we are progressing towards some ideal. Because the further you get away from that collective experience, actually, the harder it is to hold on to that set of conditions, circumstances. And you can't really contrive them. I think it's really hard to contrive post-war unity in the absence of a war. The second thing is that what really strikes me about the experience of post-war democracy in the UK is that it didn't go along with institutional reform. In the sense, this was achieved by people who thought 
they shouldn't tinker with the institutions or tinkering with the institutions would be a distraction from the primary purpose, which is to respond to, so if you take post-1945, a clear majoritarian preference, something very close to a genuine majoritarian preference for something like a social democratic settlement. And so the job is to achieve that through the existing institutions, either because you will take your eye off the ball if you do institutional reform, if you do process when you should be focused on content. But also, I think, because it's thought to be a bit dangerous, maybe to do that. But actually, if you don't do that, if you just always try and achieve it through the existing, broadly the existing institutions, it becomes harder and harder to hold on to it. And I think so this may be something we don't agree on, I'm not sure. But I think one of the problems with contemporary democratic politics is that there isn't enough focus on changing the how rather than the what, how we do it rather than what it is we're trying to achieve. If you think about the prospect of an incoming Labour government in this country, whatever you think of their programme, which hasn't been specified yet and certainly doesn't sound like a post-1945 transformation, but given how broken our politics is, there's also not much in it about changing the very way we do it, changing the way we try and track people's preferences, changing the fundamental mechanism of politics. It still seems to be whatever it is we want to do, we're going to squeeze it through the existing system. We're going to sort of take all of our ideas and ideals and we're going to squeeze them through this increasingly narrow funnel. And it is really narrow. And then it'll come out okay the other side. And I think the evidence of the last few decades is that it just doesn't come out at all. And so actually, to get democracy back to something closer to the ideal, there needs to be much more of a focus on process. Yes, but I would start by maybe saying something about what you started with, which is a shared experience of the war and of crisis and how it's easier to come to a consensus after those moments. And to me, that's a kind of reification of, of a moment in history and of people's preferences in that moment. And it's not that at some point there is a consensus in society. It's that that consensus is itself forged by political actors and by political agents. And one of the things that social democratic parties did in their infancy was because they were the hair of a tradition that wasn't institutional to begin with, was an insti that was a process of fighting and protests and mobilizing, consent in all the ways that didn't actually have to do with institutions because people didn't have access to institutions. At that point, it was much more about ideas and ideology to some extent. And parties were very active in creating interpretations of reality in a way. They knew that this was a two-way process. It wasn't just that you go out there and have to campaign to win the votes. And so what you need to know is, you know, what do the polls say or what do people's preferences, where do they stand and so on? Because they didn't have this constraint when they started these social democratic parties. They were in many ways much more free to and much more creative and much more imaginative in how they enabled their members or their sympathizers to actually articulate preferences, just didn't just find them. And I think one of the problems is that in some ways, parties right now are actually hostage of this institutional political process, whereby they think of themselves just as election winning machines. And all they need to do is go out there, convince people that they should vote for me rather than other party. And that will be enough for them to be represented. And that's exactly the problem in a way, because if you don't have a, a process that goes both ways, so parties help people understand what their conflicts are, where they're coming from, what their grievances might be about power, about how they relate to power. And then people themselves relate and participate. And you have this is also, in its, even in the making, I think democracy is a much more demanding ideal than what we think it is, because it's not just about you go out there and you convince people to vote for you and that's enough for those people to be represented. You have to find ways of representing and help people understand on the basis of what principles they ought to feel represented. So yeah, I think it's much more demanding. And that's also why I think talking about just changing institutions, that's in some ways not enough, because then we're just talking about changing the laws and how do we get to change the laws? We get to change the laws in some ways by starting to where the laws are, where we are not right now. And this is a slightly more outside perspective, I guess, what, what I'm trying to articulate. I still suspect there's quite a lot of historical contingency in that. I don't know if I'm reifying it or not. I'm not completely certain I know what that means. But when I think about the history of early social democracy, 
I completely agree with you. What gives it a lot of its drive is the sense that people were making it up as they went along. And that was certainly true of movements that came out of labor movements and early trade unionism and so on. This was a fight. It was a struggle for recognition. So if you're, by definition, if you're struggling for recognition, you're not being recognized. So the institutions aren't working. You don't have that institutional voice. You have to fight for it. But I think it was also true, if you go back to the first half of the 20th century, that the, these institutions, that is the institutions of democratic politics, as we understand them, were relatively unformed. What we call democracy is a phenomenon of the last 100 years. This particular version with elections and political parties and various forms of mass communication and so on, it comes with the technology of the 20th century. It comes with 20th century ways of doing politics, including the mass franchise, all of that. At the start of that story, it was more open-ended. Now, a lot of that is, I don't know if it's reified, but to me, it just a lot of that is stuck, right? The ways we do it are really predictably, inflexibly the same as they were 50 years ago. Whereas 100 years ago, these, these ways of doing politics were being invented by the people who are doing it. So my fear would be, if I'm thinking about this in terms of the possibility of different political outcomes, that the parties that try to reimagine what politics is in a way that, as you describe, gets people to see their preferences differently and so on, and, and tries to do that sort of communication with voters, electorate, citizens, they get squeezed out by this narrow funnel. And the institutions, which are pretty rigid now, actually surprisingly rigid, I think, parliaments, electoral systems, which just never change, the institutions themselves, they make it harder and harder every year that goes by where they don't shift. So I don't think institutional change is sufficient, but I really think it's necessary. Yeah, but I think there is an argument that would say that the problem, so yes, of course, it's necessary, but it depends on what the site of institutional change is. And it sounds to me like you're thinking about the state. And I think mm. part of the problem is that we have actually collapsed democracy into the state. And we mm. think of democracy only as democracy that is realized through state institutions. And one of the things that I think made these social democratic movements at the beginning of the origins distinctive was that they were thinking of the state as an instrument for the realization of certain democratic goals. But they didn't think that they thought the state was necessary, but they didn't think it was sufficient to realizing democracy. And they had a story about what you needed to do that went beyond the state that had to do with internationalism and with how, how states ought to cooperate with each other, with how states related in the north and the side of the world. And with, you know, imperialism, all these different, there was a diagnosis of why we didn't have global democracy that I think was much more rich and more nuanced. And to some extent, because these social democratic parties weren't so wedded to the idea of the nation state as the be all end all of democracy, that's why they had more margins for maneuver. They had more freedom in a way. And I think the problem right now is that they think of the project of advancing democracy and the project of advancing the nation state that have become for all parties completely identical. And so now it's really hard to think of what else can you do apart from trying to win elections, which is ultimately trying to have access to parliament, which is ultimately trying to change the laws. Even though we know that at a global level, you know, you are powerless if you don't have mechanisms of representation that go beyond the state and if you don't have institutions that are able to coordinate and articulate these principles beyond the nation state. But the parties of the left have just abandoned that project. And as I say, that's because they had this illusion that by having access to the state and because they were doing so well and they were winning elections and so on, at one point, the project of developing the state and the project of developing democracy became one and the same. And I think right now that is actually what's holding back democracy, that we are not able to see the state in, in a much more instrumental perspective. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And do you think one of the reasons that the left abandoned that, and more broadly, I think people don't, 
think of democracy as something that just continues to scale up. And as it were, the bigger it gets, the greater its potential is to realize some of its ideals, is because most people assume there is a problem of scale here. I mean, it's the familiar argument against international, let alone global politics. But also, I think there's always a background assumption with democracy that the best site for experimentation is the local. And this is probably true in a lot of contemporary political science and academic writing about politics. That When people are frustrated with politics at the national level, they hold up examples of really dynamic cities or regions or localities. And often it's very small scale. You know, you can do these amazing things if, if you're only 10,000 people, which is a, a lesson as old as democracy itself, because more dynamic potentially forms of democracy in the ancient world anyone who studies it quickly comes to appreciate are on a very small scale by our standards. And then it's assumed that you scale up to the nation state and you can have relatively dynamic forms of representation, but you're getting quite close to the edge of what's possible. And when you go beyond the nation state, what happens is not what you describe as what you would like to happen, which is you get more dynamic forms of representation, but actually it gets more and more attenuated and the vices of contemporary state based politics become more and more exaggerated, remote elites, and the near impossibility of creating majoritarian consensus. So you just have endless coalition building, which is one of the things our democracies have become, right? They're not Rousseauan in the sense that they are very, very, very rarely majoritarian about anything, except occasionally in a referendum, and then people get completely freaked out by what the majority wants, and they abandon it again. And so at the international level, that would become harder and harder. So why, I'd love to be persuaded of this, why should we believe that as you scale it up, rather than becoming more remote from your ideal, it gets closer to your ideal? Well, because I don't think it's a process of just scaling it up. It's a process of dispersing from within and scaling it up as well. So it's a process of internal differentiation by creating mechanisms of political participation that actually give you genuine political participation, genuine, po genuine popular control. Just to give you one example, there could be ways in which our elected representatives are much more held into account through systems of, you know, something close to imperative mandate or recalling representatives. Right? There's all this history of these democratic innovations and democratic uh, suggestions that movements have made over the years. And usually the elites run away because they don't want popular control. They don't actually want to have this. And this is all about internal differentiations of democracy. So there are ways in which you can really, you can try to have to hold representatives to account much more. But that's not how where where liberal political institutions go and want to go because they actually want something else. They want stability. They don't necessarily want popular control. They want small elites that are able to control uh, what's going on. And and they're usually and this is another standard objection to democracy is that it gives too much power to people and that you don't know because they're the rabble is concerning and this is a trope there of a kind of anti democratic trope that if you care about democracy then you really have to have an argument against. But to go back to your point, it's not just about scaling up. It's also about, as I say, internally differentiating and creating mechanisms of accountability that might require you to um, to, dis to disperse power within the nation state. And about size and scaling up, I mean, I'm not convinced by that argument because it seems to me we have lots of really big states that we don't say, oh, the U.S. is... When people think that the U.S. is the best democracy in the world, nobody says, oh, but it's too big to be democratic. I mean, you know, you just well, never that concern. They've started doesn't. saying that, but yeah. But it's not because of the size, right? There's something else going on yeah. there. And I think, so this is why, to me, just setting the, the limit at the scale of the state seems to be arbitrary. And it's just, again, the failure of imagination that you can't see this world that operates with these units that are very, very different. So, yeah. But they do say the United States is very big, but it has certain necessary features of any viable democratic unit. It has a shared language. It has, I, I, you're not going to agree with this, and I don't think I, even I agree with this. It has a shared history. It has a single currency. That is actually one of the features of most democratic units. And so people look at the EU. I mean, I don't want to get into an argument here about the EU and its democratic deficit or anything like that. But people look at the EU and they often hold that up as an example of the challenge of scale for something to be democratic. And then it seems to me that there probably are 101 ways in which European politics, regional, national, and European-wide could be more responsive in the ways that you describe, more responsive to citizen preferences and to shifts in citizen preferences. But it's really hard for me anyway to see 
where the space is to wedge that in now. I mean, it, it's a revol- it, it feels more like a revolutionary idea. So, I, so as you're speaking, to go back to the history of political thought, I, two people come to mind to me. One is Bentham. So sort of the, the Benthamite, not Bentham the utilitarian, but Bentham the radical Democrat. He said in the 1810s, 1820s, democracy needs three things. It needs a secret ballot. We got that. It needs as open a franchise as possible. He hadn't quite imagined how open it could be because it didn't for him include women, but we got that. And then it needs annual elections. Like if you wait more than a year before getting the chance to recall these bastards, they will set up little secret clubs and groups and cabals and elites and you'll lose control of the process. And we don't have that. We don't even come close to having that. It doesn't really happen anywhere. And that was the radicalism of it. So I sort of hear that, you know, you, you need much more direct recall and control and mandate. And then I hear Marx in what you're saying, that actually this is a revolutionary ideal. The closing of that gap requires something much more than just, I guess, what I'm talking about, which is finding the chink of light in the institutions through which you might begin to drive some of this stuff. It actually requires a, a reimagining of this way of doing politics because it is now captured in ways that probably aren't amenable to this kind of Benthamite opening up. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think to some extent, Marx's argument is about the relationship between economic and political power, the fact that you have these global processes of economic expansion and capital accumulation and so on. And they are sustained by a certain kind of political institution like the state and like a particular kind of state that is not really usually the democratic state. And to the extent that historically it becomes a democratic state, it's more a concession of the elites to these moments of popular uprising and trying to take control from the rich. And we also see historically that it closes very quickly as long as the, as, as soon as the elites are more secure in their capacity to actually control the state. So they open up. So there are those moments where we were talking earlier about when was social democracy successful? When did it work? It worked when economic elites were willing to make the kinds of concessions on the access to the state, to other political groups, other social classes. And it closes when those social democratic parties collude with capital and collude with the economic elites and just are able to continue. And I find that diagnosis and that analysis also very plausible because it seems to me to bear out with the kinds of realities that we observe. And it also makes sense of this idea that democracy is both an ideal and a process. It's an ideal in that we're not there really ever. And it's a process in that you're sometimes closest and sometimes further away from it, depending on political conflict, depending on history, depending on geopolitics, depending on the development of economic relations or how things go for capital when it goes well, when it's in a moment of growth and willing to share more, when it's in a moment of contraction, they're not willing to share and then democratic spaces will become more reduced. And that's also a story about ultimately how the real power is economic power. And that's, I think, compatible with what... Uh, Marx was was saying and was diagnosing. But I don't think changing the economy is all there is to having a democratic society. You need to change the economy and you need to change the system of production. But I think you also need to care about the kinds of things that you were saying earlier, Bentham uh, and other people, other Democrats cared about, which is how relationship between the people and the elites, how um, how much can you scrutinize them, how much how much can you actually have control over them, and uh, when does power degenerate and deteriorate. I mean, these are all themes in the history of political thought, which aren't strictly related to the organization of the economy, even though I think right now the organization of the economy is actually one of the fundamental questions. Also, because I think it also explains why when these democratic, social democratic parties were successful in the West, it usually also coincides with a moment where there's there's huge injustices in other places outside the kind of core liberal Western countries, but nobody really cares about what's going on there. And sometimes they are enabled by processes of exploitation in other parts of the world. Things go well for capital in one side of the world because they go badly for workers in another side of the world. And I think that's also why it's really important to think of it as a global process rather than just something that is fixated on the nation state. So I don't know if what I'm going to say now is different from what we've been saying or is just another version of what we've been saying. But one striking feature to me about how people talk about contemporary democracy is it's it's sort of taken for granted that it is about coalition building. Certainly winning elections, it's all about what coalitions you can build on the assumption that 
democratic politics has been set up, and I think this is historically true, it was set up, to make it incredibly hard for simple majorities to exercise power in that form. The majorities are broken up by the institutions, or at the very least, there's sort of multiple institutional representation, so that then you either have to build coalitions at the government level, or you need to, as a government that wants to come into power, say under the British system, where you get quite untrammeled power, you know, majoritarian government in parliament, but you've got to build a complicated coalition among the voters. There's not just one group, the 50% plus one group that rules. And we take it for granted that that's what we mean by democracy, I think. Like I was saying before, meeting real majorities is very rare. But one of the things about coalition building, there's more than one thing I want to say here. One thing is that it empowers the coalition builders. And that does seem to me to lead towards a kind of technocratic politics. It's quite a specialist skill building these kind of political coalitions. Another thing is that if you are relatively disadvantaged, you will probably find in democratic politics that you're in and out of the winning coalition, often out and occasionally in. If you are well off, you probably have the social and political capital to be pretty confident that you can be in the winning coalition most of the time. And all of this was done because the original fear that the people who created representative democracy had was that there were natural majorities in any large society. And those majorities were, and I've talked about this in the past, those majorities were the poor, the uneducated, and the young. But that's not true anymore. I mean, th th those are not the majorities anymore. So the poor, probably yes, still, the less well off. Lots of societies are now pretty evenly divided on educational lines. And then the thing that seems to me that has really shifted, which is that ours are majoritarian elderly societies over a certain age, so the majority has the entrenched power. The assumption before was there was this sort of balancing act that the majorities were relatively powerless, but they were the majority. So democracy would give them a kind of power, and then we had to counter that. Now, it seems that on some criteria at least, the majorities are the ones who have quite a strong incentive to create coalitions that hold things in place, particularly, let's say, the over 50s. And that's one of the reasons why our democracies are stuck, that actually, where you do get dominant groups in pluralities, if not majorities, it tracks, actually, sometimes it tracks power and privilege, rather than the original assumption that there was a kind of natural, creative, healthy tension, which was the powerless were the many, and the powerful were the few. So democracy gave more power to the many, by definition, and then the powerful, who were the few, would have to fight it out. Does that diagnosis speak to you at all? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's true at the global level. So no, I no, think and, it, and completely. It, so yes. again, when I think and about I think the at the global level, the young are still right. absolutely the majority, yeah. and there are yeah, many exactly. parts of so, the world where the young are majorities in a way that would be recognisable from two hundred years ago. Yeah, exactly, and also the poor. Actually, I mean, so yeah. if you think and, about and the I agree, the, the poor world, anyway, the world so population. Yeah. But I think yes, I agree with you that there was what was behind democratic thinking was exactly, and in fact, what's also behind the word. You know, democracy is the rule of the many. And if you hear, if you read all these classical texts around democracy, so the ancients, democracy, when they say it's the rule of the many, what they mean is the rule of the poor. And it is not by chance that it's the regime type that emerges from the crisis and from the collapse of uh, oligarchy, which is the rule of the, of the few and the wealthy. And I actually think that what we have now is much closer to oligarchy than to democracy for that reason, because I still believe that that account of democracy at a global level is still there in place and not really shaken. You know, there's only a very small part of the world where you have this democracy where the poor aren't so poor anymore and there's more old people than young people. I think it's a very small kind of privileged group of countries. And overall, this is not the case. But if you think about overall democracy and democracy in the ideal, then things are a little bit different. The other thing I would say about coalitions is that that seems to privilege the moment after elections. And so there is a sense in which there is a clear cutoff point between, you know, democracy before an election and democracy after an election, between a party that is seeking to be in government and then a group of parties that are in government. And again, that's a very reductive way of thinking about democracy, the party system, what parties are there to do, how we build 
coalitions, how you organize these groups of people on the basis of what principles. And real democracy requires a much more nuanced way of thinking about what brings people together. Why do they vote for certain parties? If you think of democracy along the lines of what you started, this, this idea that it's about freedom, it's about being able to remain as free as possible while still knowing that you are constrained by laws and by elites and, and by politics. And if that is the ideal, then the focus shouldn't be just, okay, what happens when a party is elected? What happens after the election? Or what, ha what happens when they're in government? It should be throughout the process. And in some ways, you know, Gramsci had this sentence where he says, the election is just the final moment in a kind of ceremony on the long, long march that doesn't, you know, starts way before that. And that's something that we have also lost, I think. So I think that two things are going on here. So you have the long, long process before the election, which is the building of the electoral coalition in the sense of pulling together different social groups among the voters to try and get you over the line. And then after the election, you have the other kind of coalition building, which is sort of pulling together the government. And those two things are actually pretty disconnected. Mm -hmm. I mean, some systems connect them more than others, and there are advantages and disadvantages to proportional systems and first-past-the-post systems and so on. But actually, the disjunction of the election is I mean, if you think about the, the Labour Party in Britain today, it has been spending the last four years, however long it is, trying to build its coalition in a very small C conservative way. You know, a few people here, a few people there trying to get it and, and then build in insurance in that because it's terrified that it's kind of wishful and that you know, the Labour Party, when it finally wins elections, usually overcompensates and wins more comfortably than it needs to because it's lost the last four or five and is terrified. But in that process of trying to build the coalition. And then after the election, assuming that Labour wins it, there will be the putting together of what kind of government do we want. I'm not sure I understand how those two processes are connected. And I don't think I have a lot of confidence that they are particularly closely connected. Yeah, I think they're not at all connected. I think that's actually one of the contradictions of liberal representative institutions is that they're exactly disjointed. And I think the, the paradox is in the name. We have democracy and we have party and we have party democracy. Now, democracy is about collectivity and collective subjects and speaking in the name of everyone. The party is a part. It's not the whole. It's just a part that makes a case on behalf of a part that advocates certain principles and says, you know, I'm speaking to this particular group of people, I'm trying to channel their commitments, and but in the knowledge that there are other parts out there. I mean, this it's constituent to liberal democracy that there isn't just one party, there's lots of parties. All these different parties, even in the ideal, have their own principles, their own ideologies, their own issues that they contest with each other. So when you're in election mode before, uh, when you're in the sort of um, in the pre-voting mo moment, you're appealing to your constituency. Now, that's maybe lost. But even in the ideal, you are always saying, you know, we're making a case for this particular group of people, for this subject, for that subject. And then when you're in government, you have to defend the interest of the state. And so you move from representing a part to having to represent the whole. So I think that's an intrinsic paradox of how parties and governments are connected in, in liberal democratic in liberal institutions. But that does sound to me like one of the paradoxes that would be even more pronounced at the international, let alone global level, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this is why in some ways the way it works, the way it's resolved in the in the world that we live in, and that's why it's not in the end genuine democracy, is that it's actually all of that disappears and you have political and economic mechanisms that are connected to such level that actually, even though you have a lot of parties, what you have is just one type of rule, in a way, one type of economic policies, one type of catering to what the markets say or what international trade requires or responding to outside stimuli. So I think that's how it's resolved in liberal representative institutions. It's resolved because it combined usually with capitalism and capitalism set the, sets the constraints. If you were in a post-capitalism scenario where you would have a much more open way of organizing the economy, that would be a much more demanding ideal as well, because then you'd have to think about what are all these ways of interacting that are all channeling freedom at all these different levels and that can't really be resolved with a fiat. They have to be, you have to have the right processes in place that then can lead to the right outcomes understood as not that there is agreement all the time, but that there is a way of channeling disagreements that's genuinely supportive of freedom. So I think 
in liberal institutions, that it's a paradox, but it's only a paradox up to a point because in the end it doesn't really matter because, as I say, I think capital in the end is more important. And so what the markets say and however much Liz Trust might want to do with her ideology and with libertarian commitments, in the end there's going to come a point where you get a shock, an external shock that says, hey, hang on, this is not working. So that paradox is resolved in that way by just being completely submitted to the dynamics of of capital in a different economic environment, in a different set of political organizations. That would be a very, very different challenge, I think. I think we're going to have to continue this conversation because there are about seven things I now want to ask you, and I'm going to limit myself to two, okay? I'm going to ask you two more questions, and these are genuine questions. So the first is about, and I think we should talk more about this. I'm really interested in it, and I don't know how to think about it. Why international democracy, which on one level is so appealing and also feels like not just the logical but the emotional extension of national democracy and for many people for a long time it was why it's become so seemingly remote indeed impossible for many people and the question is when you think about what might generate a shift in perspective can you envisage circumstances that could regenerate a sense of enthusiasm around international democracy. So it's often been assumed that as some of the fundamental challenges the world faces, some of them existential, reveal themselves to be global, planetary, whatever it is, that must drive people to think that collective action beyond the nation state is a prerequisite for our survival. But it hasn't happened yet. It doesn't look like it's anywhere near happening. And if anything, the reverse seems to happen, which is because these existential challenges are not experienced collectively, actually, all of them, climate is just one. I mean, there are many, including global financial crises. They have these massively differential effects. And they seem to drive a sense of difference rather than a sense of shared collective fate. Can you tell me what, in your mind, are the circumstances in which it goes the way that it ought to go? Yeah, I think I'm a Hegelian on this. I mean, I'm a Kantian generally, but on this particular question, I think I'm a Hegelian. We can't, you can't know in advance. So you have to do what you think is the right thing to do that is supportive of a process going in a certain direction. But I don't think there's any point in history where you can point the finger and say, right now, this is a genuinely progressive revolutionary moment. Sometimes it's a war, sometimes it's a climate catastrophe, sometimes it's just an accident of history, sometimes someone dies, whatever, you know, there's all history, I think, moves forward with in very, very weird and, and different circumstances. And it's really hard to say, I think, in advance, which of these moments will be the one that is conducive to an outcome that is more compatible with what I would like it to be. So this is why for me, the question of what is it exactly? What is the weakest link in the chain or how do you do it? I mean, there are lots of different theories out there and lots of different ways of making sense of that. But I think it's it's almost like you're engaging in prophetic history where you're trying to say, well, this is what I think is going to produce. The, so, and, I, and I'm not sure generally that's a particularly good thing to do. I think what you need to do or what we need to do is to know what our commitments are. And as political agents, as citizens, as people who are in, the, in each of their, you know, what some people would call in our role obligations, do promote the kind of thing that is you think is most compatible with what you would like to see happen. But knowing that you also can't ever have the bigger picture, and actually nobody really has the bigger picture in a way. I don't think there's anyone out there that can ever come and say, look, I've got the program, 10 points program of what the world needs to do to become more genuinely internationalist and genuine post-capitalist or whatever. So, I mean, there are obviously little bits of advice that come from many different places, and some of them are more maybe plausible than the other, and there one needs to have more specific conversations. But yeah, I don't think there is, it can come from, from any direction and maybe even in the moments where you don't think it's likely to happen. So that's a note of both pessimism in that we don't know, but maybe also optimism because we because we don't know. We can't know that we're not there yet and it just looks like it's terrible and that something will happen and will things will change. About why the world is less um, internationalist, I think it's normal. I mean, just like in in the nation state, the rich and the powerful don't want to lose their privileges. In the global level, the rich states don't want to lose their privileges. And the international domain, international law, international institutions are dominated and shaped by the most rich and most powerful states. And so 
it's very normal that they don't want to make concessions to other people. I mean, even in the EU, there are hierarchies between more powerful and less powerful countries, stronger and, and weaker states. And usually the weak states have to suffer the repercussions of being in a position of vulnerability vis-a-vis -vis the power of larger states. So the international system is shaped, controlled by these powerful states, and they don't want to let go of their privileges. On your first point, this might be too crude, but you, I took you to be saying not prophecy, but faith. Yeah, right. yeah, that's right. I think, and I that's, think that's, right. that's my problem. I've always had a problem with faith. Well, I mean, I you think have, I have to a problem faith. with prophecy too, but um. no, I mean, I, I think people say I have a problem with faith, but actually, I, the more I think about this, it's just not true. We all act with faith all the time. Mm. Otherwise, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Do you know? Have you read Oblomov, this uh, yeah. novel? It's like we will all be like Oblomov. We couldn't be bothered, but we all care and we clearly do things that show our faith in the world. And I think we just need to affirm that faith more rather than just say, oh, there's no faith. So that touches on the last thing I want to say, and you can answer this very briefly, which is that seems to me the other ways in which people are different. And I already hearing what you've just said, I'm aware this is too crude. But we do, and we maybe always have lived in a world where people have vastly different levels of enthusiasm for the demands of this kind of politics. Mm. And that was certainly one of the considerations historically of people who designed these institutions, an assumption that there is always a risk that you leave politics in the hands of the people. So you might leave it in the hands of majorities who are thought to be irresponsible. But the other fear was that you leave it not in the hands of majorities, but the minority of those majorities yeah. who are the radicals, the activists, or simply the people who just have the appetite for this, including maybe the appetite for the particular demands of a political life, which are, you know, they are not for everyone, I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that. I no, think that's I know you only, don't. I can tell you because don't. So that's on. Do you know why? Because I think that means that your default view of politics is that politics is a burden, and that you know we have to do it, but it's it's evil, and we don't have we don't really want to care, but we have to care because otherwise someone else will take control. But I think of you know think of politics as friendship, as as Aristotle says, a, a certain kind of friendship. And that can be assertive of your humanity because you have these social relations and you think about, if you think about what political parties should be if they were doing their job properly, they are sites in which, yes, of course, we don't all care all the time in the same way, but there are these collective organizations that enable us to care some of the time and then some other times we can let go because we know that there are other people that are continuing the project forward. That's what they do when they're communities of principle. They're not communities of principle anymore. And so we are left with this really impoverished view of politics that is driven by fear and by disbelief and by concern about what the elites might do. And that's because, as I say, that is both the problem and the outcome in a way. It's the source of the problem. And it's also why it doesn't get better, because we have this view of this pessimistic view of politics. That is the second conversation on this podcast with Leia Ippi. It will not be the last. We are going to be doing more about different themes in the history of ideas, in philosophy, and in politics. As always, do please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas for links to this episode and future episodes. Next week, it's going to be the 10th in our 12-part series on the great essays and the great essayists. And I'm going to be talking about Umberto Eco's essay, Thoughts on WikiLeaks. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.